Good morning. Uh, good to see you folks uh, today, and uh, hopefully you have some notes in front of you that say, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And I want to begin this morning by drawing your attention to um, Genesis chapter 3. If you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, it's a good section to kind of frame our thinking about the subject that we'll be uh, considering this morning and the next uh, few Lord's Day mornings as well. But Genesis chapter 3. And then beginning at verse 1, Genesis, uh, the third chapter, and then beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, excuse me, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply multiply your pain in childbirth, In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And let us pray. Father, this morning we thank you so much that we can begin this Lord's Day by fellowshipping with one another. We thank you so much for the the preciousness and the reality of the communion of the saints, and we thank you for the 
the common joy and the common life and the common hope we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for condescending to our helpless estate and bringing us from darkness to light through him. And this morning, as we would consider um, your word and this, this theme of the fall of man, I would pray uh, for the help of your Holy Spirit to um, bring honor and glory to thee and to be uh, helpful in, in just in conveying your word to each one that is here. We would pray that you would impart unto our, our souls a reliance on your spirit and on your word to inform our mind and our thinking uh, this day. And so just bless our time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have uh, embarked on, on several lessons on the theme of, uh, of Christ the Mediator, Chapter 8 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And this morning we're backing up uh, two chapters, uh, to Chapter 6, of the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. I went back two chapters, uh, Chapter 6, which focuses on the fall of man, because it naturally precedes the theme of Chapter 7, which is God's covenant, uh, the nature of the fall, the character of the fall, helps us to feel the need for a, a covenant which will effect man's salvation. Uh, the, this morning is principally introductory to this particular chapter and this specific theme. We're going to fo focus exclusively on, on the great need to understand the fall of man. So it's introductory primarily. And I'm going to give you three reasons why it's important and why it's very helpful to our thinking process. And the, the bulk of our time will be related to the third reason, which is the gospel. And uh, so these are, uh, these are categories of, uh, of thought, just to give credit where credit is due, that I was helped from, from uh, the notes of uh, Pastor Tom Lyon on this particular chapter, and I've developed them uh, a bit, but just to give credit where credit is due. Uh, but if we, if we break it down and, and try to ask the question, well, why is the, the fall of man helpful? What does it help us to understand? In the first place, um, th this biblical doctrine gives us an understanding of history. Uh, and when I say history, I mean it helps us to know uh, why sin and evil is present in every epoch of history. I would not present myself as any kind of a bona fide historian, but one of the things that you notice is a constant, isn't it? It doesn't matter what kind of history you read or where in history, um, that there's always the presence of, of sin and evil and everything that goes along with it. After the fall of our parents that we read about um, in Genesis chapter 3, the potential of any kind of a spiritual or moral utopia is, is doomed to failure in this world prior to the return of, of Christ. Um, it's true to say that there are, are, are some cities some places in which sin is more obvious and overt, I think, than others. And you're ahead of me on this one, but if you turn, we're still in Genesis, but if you turn to chapter 19, chapter uh, 19, and this is just kind of a great example of how, although there's sin in all places, it's more overtly present in, uh, in other, some places than others. And this is a great example of this in Genesis chapter 19, and here verses 1 through 13, especially notice verse 4 and verse 13. Um, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down before his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my Lord, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your, your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we, will, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, 
before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. So it gives you a sense of the pervasiveness of sin at that time in, in this particular place. They called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. Already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than him, than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Verse 12, Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord, before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So you, you have sin in every city, in every epoch of history, and in some places it's worse than others. But it would be fair to say, um, I think there's a, there's a city in Nevada that's referred to as Sin City, but you could refer to any city where there are people as a Sin City because it's, it's not as prevalent in some places as, as others. Um, but the fall marks the particular point in history where, where sin had entered into the world, what we just got through reading. That's the particular point in history where sin entered the, the, the world. So sin and evil, they're a great constant in history. It's a great unifying theme, you could say, of history. And uh, town hall meetings and councils and laws can't change that because it doesn't change the nature of man. Uh, and your notes are on, on page one. There's a good, helpful quote from uh, Louis Burkhoff. He writes, the problem of the origin of the evil that is in the world has always been considered as one of the profoundest problems of philosophy and theology. It is a problem that naturally forces itself upon the attention of man, since the power of evil is both great and universal as an ever-present blight on life in all its manifestations, and is a matter of daily experience in the life of every man. Philosophers were constrained to face the problem and to seek an answer to the question as to the origin of all the evil, and particularly of the moral evil that is in the world. To some, it seemed to be so much a part of life itself that they sought the solution for it in the natural constitution of things. Others, however, were convinced that it had a voluntary origin, that is, that it originated in the free choice of man, either in the present or in some previous existence. These are much closer to the truth as it is, re as it is revealed in the word of God. So we, we see that it helps us to understand history and why things are the way they are. They're, they're the same. It doesn't change. And I, I think sometimes in our culture, because of the advancement in technology, we tend to think we're quite a bit different, especially to pre-industrial revolution kinds of people. But the fact of the matter is, I would say the advance in technology, if it's done anything, it reveals how sinful we are, does it not? Uh, I mean, it, it just shows what has always been true is still true. There's nothing, there's nothing different. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. So you know, one of the values of studying the fall of man and the nature of the fall, it helps us to understand history and why it is, why it's always been the way that it is. Secondly, as Christian believers, it helps us to understand ourselves as Christians. And again, turn if you would here to um, 
You might be ahead of me, but turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And again, one of the values of studying the fall, it helps us to understand our own Christian life in this time in the world. Romans seven fourteen to 24. Um, and I, I've spent time in the past on this, and I know there's different ways of understanding this section of Romans 7. So I, I believe that Paul is talking about himself as a regenerate man. So that's kind of the track that I, I take here. So verse 14 of Romans 7, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Uh, But I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find, verse 21, I find then a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law, verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So you read this and you think, man, Paul's a guy that needs help, right? Well, so are we. And um, verse 21, I think, is very helpful. Paul says, I find, notice he says, I find a principle that evil is present uh, in me, the one who wants to do good. And, and, and the Puritan John Owen's take on this is that this, this law or this principle of action uh, reveals itself at the particular point in time when I want to do good. That's when it shows itself. That's when it reveals itself at the particular point in time when I want to do good. It's like a guy, not really, but it'd be like a halfback who says, every time I carry the football, 11 guys are trying to knock me down. And I'm trying to do something good to score a touchdown, but every time I hold the ball, they're, they're knocking knocking me down. You know. And the idea here is I, I find that every time I would do good, when I want to do good, it's then that this law reveals itself and there's this resistance and that happens especially around the same, you find the same thing, right? This is like amen. Uh, you find the same thing. When you want to read the Bible, there's this resistance. Or you want to do something good or you read a book that you know is going to be good for your soul, you'll find resistance that normally is not there. So Paul, this is like testimony time. He's saying, this is what I found in the living of the Christian life. There's this remaining principle. When I would do good things, it reveals itself. It makes itself known. So my point here is simply this. The, the fall of man and the effects of the fall, it helps you and I to understand ourselves. It helps us to understand the struggles that we have. It helps us to understand why you read certain things about David in the Old Testament or Abraham in the Old Testament or Noah in the Old Testament. How could they do this? It's because of the reality of remaining sin. It's the effects of the fall. Well, then, thirdly, and this is what I want to spend the the most time on this morning, it's a doctrine, the fall, it really helps us to understand the gospel. Um, that is, the character of the fall is needed to understand the nature and the character of the gospel. The doctrine of the fall, the nature of the fall, is closely related to um, what is called total depravity. Total depravity, and you can see that's the bulk of your notes this morning. And, and, and the total depravity 
is is really the effects of the fall. It's it, it's, it's what it did to man. And my point that I want to emphasize here, it, it helps us to understand the nature and the character of the gospel, the, the, the term total depravity, which, again, is closely related to the idea of the fall. It especially emphasizes the, the effects of the fall. And so it facilitates a clearer understanding of the gospel. Um, Pastor Lyme wrote, it's no mere coincidence that the first doctrine of grace is total depravity. That's number one. That's, that's what begins to help us to understand the nature of the gospel. And, and he makes the point, and this is a bit subjective, and, uh, but I, I think it's true to say that Reformed people and the Puritans really take the doctrine of the fall seriously. Uh, in broader evangelicalism, this is kind of my own experience, they don't take the fall as seriously in the verses that deal with it as, as Reformed thought, and especially as, as Puritan thought does. And, and, of course, the issue is what's biblical. And, and the point is it helps us to understand the, the, um, the gospel, and particularly uh, the doctrine of, of total depravity. Um, so it gives us a, a greater appreciation for what God must do to save a soul. So we'll look at, in the time remaining, total depravity uh, under four different headings. And first of all, this is just a, a note from George Whitfield to Religious Societies in 1739. But it gives you a, a kind of a window into how his mind worked and how, how he thought about the character of Christian believers. He says, The end of your meeting is not that you may think yourselves more holy than your neighbors, much less to form a sect or party or to promote a schism or sedition in the church or state. No, such uh, thoughts, I trust, are far from you, for they are earthly, sensual, devilish. The only end which I hope you all propose by your assembling yourselves together is the renewing of your depraved natures and promoting the hidden life of Jesus Christ in your soul. So, I mean, that's how he thought. There, there is this remaining depravity, and you're trying to overcome that and grow stronger in grace. So four headings here, um, how this helps us to understand the gospel. Uh, number one, because I, I don't know what comes to every person's mind when you hear the phrase total depravity. So number one, from a negative perspective, uh, these are some of the things that it's not. It's not the exact same thing as universal sinfulness. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. It emphasizes more the effects of universal sinfulness. Second, it does not mean that all men are equally bad. And just observation tells you that that is the case. Um, third, it does not mean that any one person is as bad as they possibly can be. And this is because all everyone is, is still created in the image of God. This doesn't mean that any one person is as evil as they possibly can be. Uh, number four, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue. I would just make the same the point in the same way. Everyone is created in the, in the image of God, and, and so it doesn't mean that. Kurt Daniels wrote, it's not extreme sinfulness, uh, it's depravity, it's not extreme sinfulness. This mistaken notion suggests that only certain extreme sinners are totally depraved. The rest are only partially depraved. Calvinism grants that some sins are worse than others and that some should be sinners are worse than others. But total depravity means that all men are totally depraved. Even the sinner with the fewest number of sins is totally depraved. Secondly, what is the nature of, of total depravity? And here's a, a, a good thought from a very helpful book by uh, uh, David Steele, Curtis Thomas, and Lance Quinn on the five points of Calvinism. Uh, when Calvinists speak of a man as being totally depraved, they mean that man's nature is corrupt, perverse, and sinful throughout. So a key word would be throughout. The adjective total does not mean that each sinner is as totally or completely corrupt in his actions and thoughts 
as is possible for him to be. Instead, the word total is used to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. The corruption extends to every part of man, his body and soul. Sin's, sin has affected all, the, the totality of his mind and his will. Secondly, uh, from Robert Raymond, every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, uh, his, his body has been affected by sin. So it, it, has, re, um, it has relation to the totality of one's being. It's closely related to, number three here, closely related to the idea of total inability, total inability. And this is from uh, chapter 9. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Uh, so as a natural man, being altogether averse from the good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And, and that's where, I, again, I would say that it's, it's Reformed people, it seems to me, that really give the, the scriptures their, their due warrant here, that, that unsaved men and women have an inability in and of themselves to respond to the gospel, to repent and, and, and turn to Christ. Well, fourthly, just uh, what is some scriptural support for the doctrine of total depravity? Um, and a couple of texts that we'll, we'll, we'll look at here. First is Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that's what the scripture says, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Calvin's comment is every imagination and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Moses has traced the cause of the deluge to external acts of iniquity. He now ascends higher and declares that men were not only perverse by habit and by the custom of evil living, but that wickedness was too deeply seated in their hearts to leave any hope of repentance. He certainly could not have been, could not have more forcibly asserted that the depravity was such as no moderate remedy might cure. Moses teaches us that the mind of those concerning whom he speaks was so thoroughly imbued with iniquity that the whole presented nothing but what was to be condemned. For the language he employs is very emphatical. It seemed enough to have said that their heart was corrupt, but not content with this word. He expressly asserts every imagination of the thoughts of the heart and adds the word only as if he would deny that there was a drop of good mixed with it. Continually, the more correct interpretation is that the world had then become so hardened in its wickedness and was so far from any amendment or from entertaining any feeling of penitence that it grew worse and worse as time advanced. It's like Romans 1. And further, that it was not the folly of a few days, but the inveterate depravity which the children having received as by hereditary right transmitted from their parents to their descendants. Nor do they rashly distort the passage who extend it to the whole human race. So when David says that all have revolted, that all that they are become unprofitable, that is, none who does good, not one, their throat is an open sepulcher, there is no fear of God before their eyes, he deplores, the, uh, he deplores truly the impiety of his own age. Yet Paul, in Romans 3.12, does not scruple to extend to all men in every age and with justice, for it is not a mere complaint concerning a few men, but a description of the human mind when left to itself destitute of the Spirit of God. So his point is, Paul is saying the same thing in Romans. So 4,000 years later, the same thing is true about man as it was true in David's time. Uh, it was true in Paul's time as well. And in Genesis 8.21 
It says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is, this is after the flood, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And, and Calvin makes the point here, I mean, the basic idea here, I'll read it, is that he'd have to flood the earth every day if that were the case. It behooves us more deeply to consider his design, for it was the will of God that there should be some society of men who inhabit the earth. If, however, they were dealt with according to their deserts, there would be a necessity of a daily deluge. Moreover, since God here declares what would be the character of men even to the end of the world, it is evident that the whole human race is under the sentence of condemnation on account of its depravity and wickedness. Let men therefore acknowledge that inasmuch as they are born of Adam, they are depraved creatures and therefore can conceive only sinful thoughts until they become the new workmanship, the new workmanship of Christ and are formed by his spirit to a new life. Well, just to kind of press this a bit further, we're just looking at, at, at scriptures that make this point about total depravity and, and show how to, it it's, relates to the mind, the will, the emotions, and that's really what the rest of, of this is. First of all, there are verses that help us to understand the nature of man's heart and how his heart has been affected. Owen has a helpful definition of heart here. He says the heart in the scripture is variously used, sometimes for the mind and understanding, sometimes for the will, sometimes for the affections, sometimes for the conscience, sometimes for the whole soul. So it has to be looked at in context. He, he says generally it denotes the whole soul of man and all the faculties of it. Not absolutely, but as they are one principle of moral operations. They all concur in our doing good or evil. So just uh, some verses that help us understand the nature of man's heart. Ecclesiastes 9.3 there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. So that's the description of man. Insanity in their heart is in their hearts throughout their lives. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In Mark 7, 21, the words of our Lord, For from within... Out of the heart, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. So it comes from within. It comes from the heart. And then there's uh, verses that help us to understand man's condition more, more generally. Uh, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead, Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, he says, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Uh, Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, have, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Proverbs 29, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from sin. And the answer is nobody. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, 
that God men made, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. They have sought out many devices. And then verses that reveal the extent to which the mind is affected by sin. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. This is the condition of the unsaved and does not subject itself to the law of God. Notice this, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Titus 1, 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then verses that reveal the extent to which sin has affected the affections of unsaved man. What does unsaved man love? John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.1 and following, Paul says, realize this in the last days, difficult times will come. And here's why. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So they have affection, but their affection is not directed towards the being of God. It starts with the love of themselves. And then verses that, that bring out man's enslavement to sin. This is the effects of the fall. His enslavement to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6, 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then verses that show man in his unconverted state resides in spiritual darkness, spiritual darkness. Uh, Ephesians 5, 8, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Colossians 1, 13, He delivered us from the domain of darkness. This God must act. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And then uh, verses that reveal man's inability to respond to God apart from the work, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, in the form of a question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then, the answer is no, the inference is then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Or Matthew seven sixteen, you will know them by their fruits, fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. In John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then just kind of a final thought here. The doctrine of total depravity um, is further proved by the necessity of regeneration. That is to say, man's condition is proved by the fact that if he is going to be saved, that God has to act. There has to be a profound work of the Spirit indoors. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born of God. So, just some introductory thoughts here about the doctrine of um, the fall of man, and then especially as it relates to the gospel. I think it, it helps us to understand history, helps us to understand ourselves, and it really helps us to understand why it is that salvation is of the Lord. You look at these verses and you... And you 
pile them up and just look at them together and you realize that the only way this unsaved person, the only way that they're going to come and, and, and repent is if God intercedes and God intervenes and God does something to their, their soul. So um, let us look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the word of that you have revealed to us in Holy Scripture. We thank you for its revelation. We thank you for the light it brings to our thinking process. I, I pray that the time we spent together this morning would be instructive to our minds and to our own hearts. I, I pray it would cause us to be thankful to, to you and um, to bring glory to, to you and, and to delight in what you've been pleased to do in our own souls. And I, I pray it, it might be used to encourage us to pray for the salvation of lost souls. We, we realize, Lord, it's not within our power to save anybody. And I, I pray this might impress upon our, our souls the need to pray to you, that you would act, that uh, you would remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh and people that we love and people that we care about, that you would do a work in their souls, that you would do a work in their hearts. And um, so thank you for the time together. Pray that um, our fellowship would be precious and encouraging and, and sweet. And as we would gather together for a public worship this morning, we would pray for a deep, clear working of your, your spirit, that you would empower us as we would praise you and worship you and delight in thee. So just bless um, the rest of our time together this morning and this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.